One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, Paul here. It's September. So before we kick off today's rage, I'd like to give a shout out to our new Patreon subscribers joining us through August. And they are Brad Larson, Andrew J, and Alistair Campbell-Greve. So welcome to the Angry Mob. Yours and all the contributions are helping us improve the microphones and expand out into live shows. So thank you and enjoy September. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about members of the historical community going behind enemy lines to stick it to the myths. The podcast that lets our learned academics get medieval on what we get wrong. I am your usual host Paul Bavel and I'm here with my ever loyal co-host and good friend Kyle Glover. Hello. And this week we're going into the murky world of clandestine operations and to guide us on this unsanctioned jump behind enemy lines we have SOE historian author of Mission France the true history of the women of SOE and director of the historical presentation company History's Made Dr Kate Vigers Kate welcome to History Rage Thank you for having me You're welcome I've been trying to just pin you down for <laughs> so long but you're you're always at one castle or one museum or another so thank you for sparing us the time No uh, no problem at all Now Good lord I I've known you since we first met at the Royal Armouries back in 2005 when I believe you were a historian and presenter interpreter at the Armouries I first saw you commentating at Joust Did you I was trying to work out how we met Yes yeah you used to yeah. commentate Joust still commentate Joust all these years later <laughs> Good lord well you know you you have the knack for it um I've also just finished your first book which I have to say I've thoroughly enjoyed so hats off to you there Thank you. But for our other listener, tell us a little bit about your background and your career and how you got into all this stuff. So, uh where to start? I suppose uh, my first degree was in drama, always wanted to act and uh went and studied drama at the University of Hull. And then after I graduated, uh, a job came up at the Royal Armouries and mm-hmm. it just opened and it was amazing and I used to go and watch all the armor fights and the talks and I just thought it was incredible. So I took the opportunity to apply, auditioned and got the job. Uh first of all, it was just to be as Annie Oakley 
um, and working in the Buffalo Bill exhibition. <laughs> uh, but they must have seen a talent in me and they kept me on. And uh, I thought I, you were a rubbish shot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the American accent was something to behold. But yeah, I, I picked up a repertoire of pieces working there, rode the horses, did sword fighting, and eventually went on to become an event manager on behalf of the museum. But I missed it all so much that uh, when that was over, um, mm -hmm. I set up Histories Made and went back into historical interpretation. I've been doing it ever since. And the love of SOE came from the armories. I wanted a character which was interesting and exciting and didn't just make tea for Tommy or, you know, sit yeah. around watching wars. I actually got involved in it. We sort of remembered SOE from watching a program called Wish Me Luck in the 80s and just set out seeing if there was a way of, of doing something around it and produced a script and then... I couldn't stop. I just loved it. So started an MA that became a PhD. And after I finished that, I thought, never again will I do something like this. It's heartbreaking and time consuming. And <laughs> then along came Yale University Press and said, would you write a book? So here I am, a published oh, author with a love of SOE still. And uh, good hat tip for uh, for the series Wish Me Luck there, because that's how I got into SOE Oh, really? Well. Oh, I um, love it. Yeah, it's it's proudly sitting in my DVD collection downstairs, the the full box set, for, for just those moments when I want to see Jane Asher in 1940s clothing, <laughs> um, as well as, uh, as well as what I, I would say is London Weekend Television's best kind of weekend drama. Oh, definitely. It was brilliant. I mean, it was written on the yeah. back of Tenko. They wanted another programme with sort of female protagonists. But oh, it was just brilliant. And it caught my attention as a, a sort of youngish child. And yeah. I think just stayed with me. And, you know, I'm mates with Kate Buffery on Facebook now. You know, who would have known that you could be friends with your childhood hero uh, oh, on social media? <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> well, moving then from your childhood heroes to your adulthood <laughs> hatred. Huh. We're on History Rage. It's about getting angry. So, with all the rage that you feel that it should muster, okay, please, will you tell us, Kyle, and our listeners, the one thing you wish people would just get over? It's the women of SOE. It's the fact that people think the women did everything, that uh, they were out there on their own. There were men in SOE as well. Uh, in fact, there were quite a lot of men in SOE. And they had very, very important jobs and they worked alongside these women. But these women couldn't have done it without the men. The men couldn't have done it without the women. But I get really sick of hearing the unsung stories of the women. Actually, it's the unsung stories of the men because there is nothing out there that equals the kind of writing, nonfiction writing that there is, in my opinion, about the women. There's something, there's nothing modern We've got loads of amazing autobiographies out there. But whenever mm -hmm. I talk to somebody, it's, oh, didn't the women, you know, blah, blah, blah. And yes, but didn't the men as well, actually. Can I just say, thank God somebody's finally <laughs> said it. <laughs> oh, it's lowered my blood pressure as that. And uh, yeah, thank you. Because I've always had that. You, you, you can't help but fall over the women of SOE. And when they talk about an unsung hero... And we have one of them in our Unsung Heroes of D-Day presentation. So I am kind of guilty of this as well. But yeah, they're, they're in fact very sung heroes. They are, and, and um, some more than others for various reasons. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there, there's men out there and they did really amazing things. And I think sometimes it's just overlooked completely. So I'm going to have to ask you, and you're going to have been asked this before then, your first, and as I recall, only book so far... 
is these the women of F section of SOE? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ever thinking of writing one about the men? Oh, I have thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> but decided it That's wouldn't pay very the bill. marketable writing a book about women. <laughs> no, um, I, you know, I take your point completely. And I'll never forget meeting a very prominent SOE historian at the National Archives. And I told him what I was doing. And he said, oh, God, another book about the women. I thought, yes, but you haven't read it yet because it's yes. about my favourite review is that my book is about the women who are normally in the footnotes, who are now in the main text. So, yes, it is yeah. a book, but you've read it. I always talk about the men who worked alongside these women. I never make out that they're out there in isolation. And it was kind of something I had to do almost as a rite of passage before moving on to something else. And I will argue that the way I came into this was as a female performer. So my interest was always going to be in the women first because I'm yeah. portraying women. Mm yeah, okay, I've had 20 years to rectify this. And I still haven't got around to it. But here I am. I'm out here saying, yeah, there were men in SOE and I admire each and every one of them as much as I do the women. Excellent. Well, that that brings us neatly into uh, question number one. Yeah, so who are some examples of some of the men that have been eclipsed who are being overshadowed here? Now, Kyle, you're going to be a bit cross with me because I am still going to focus on F section because this is my area. I, I know that, you know, Another history rage could be that they're all over the world, not just in France. I'm going to start with Georges Begay. Georges Begay was the first ever SOE agent to be infiltrated. And he was also the first uh, one to establish a wireless link back to the UK. And Begay is incredibly important because he sets up all the, um, he starts to go out and to set up the réseau, the networks to get the resistors on board, trying to work out if SOE is viable. But he comes up with something that SOE then used throughout the rest of the war, which is the message personnel on the BBC. Now, what he does is he realises that after the news, now I'm going to backtrack, actually, it was illegal to listen to the BBC yeah. uh, in occupied France. If you were caught doing it, you would end up in a hell of a lot of trouble. And not just because you haven't paid the licence fee. No, exactly. It was, uh, do you know what? It was actually propaganda-free news believe it or not. Uh, there was Radio Londres, there was Radio Paris. Uh, so Radio Londres was the, the French, uh, free French radio coming yeah. out of London. Radio Paris was the German controlled radio. But they needed something. People wanted something. So they listened to the BBC. At the end of the news broadcast, there was something called the message personnel, where messages could be sent. Uh, I think this started on the back of Dunkirk for people who'd evacuated to send messages to their relatives. And Begay said, let's use it. Let's use this. We can tell people a parachute drop's going to happen or that an action is going to happen in a certain district. And we're not going to use code. This is an enigma. This isn't a one-time pad or a poem code. This is gobbledygook. So if you say the giraffe wears a necktie uh, and the people in Limoges have been told that means tonight you go and do that act of sabotage and this giraffe doesn't wear a necktie, you don't go and do it. You can't crack it because there's nothing to crack. But Begay came up with this. And I just think he was the most wonderful, wonderful man. He was very self-effacing and just did phenomenal work. And uh, it was the anniversary of his infiltration last year. And it was commemorated. And I was so, so glad uh, because he was just, you know, a brilliant agent with a brilliant idea that got yeah. used throughout the rest of the war. And if we hadn't had that, how would they have told all the resistance networks across France that D-Day was going to happen, for yeah. example? They're all sat waiting for the radio. So, yeah, Begay's a, a big hero of mine. Another one is 
Harry Ray. Uh, right. Harry Ray was a teacher. Uh, he went out into occupied France. And he noticed that things weren't going quite as well as maybe they should be. Because um, at the time, we were using the RAF to bomb factories. And mm-hmm. the problem with that, now I'm not dissing the RAF, don't get me wrong, but it's a well-known fact that if you're flying over a target at night, you're probably going to hit the target, but there's every chance you're going to hit the town hall. There's every chance you're going to hit the village. And mm-hmm. Ray noticed this, and he noticed that the collateral damage was absolutely huge. And the damage to the factories wasn't necessarily as good or as destructive as they wanted it to be. So Ray came up with the idea of blackmail sabotage. So what he would do is go into uh, the factories. It was Peugeot where he was particularly interested Mm -hmm. uh, because they'd lost a lot of people during a bombing raid. And he went into the factory at Peugeot and spoke to the owner and he said, look, let me in, let me infiltrate the factory, bring in some resistance workers, SOE workers, get the lay of the land and we will sabotage the factory from within. We will blow up the machinery and there'll be no damage to personnel or anyone around it. If you don't let us do it, we'll just let the RAF come and they will destroy your town again. Uh, And this became the new way of doing things. Go in with your plastic explosive, lay the charges And he did an incredible job of that. He, on one occasion, blew up uh, a factory. He destroyed 5,000 truck tires uh, at Clermont-Ferrand. That was at the Michelin factory. And at Peugeot, he managed to uh, just cause absolutely vast amounts of damage. He said, one way or another, I'm going to destroy your factory. So you let me in or uh, I'm going to do it myself. As it was on bonfire night as well. Oh, classic. The French probably didn't realize that. But I think it's a great twist that uh, things happened on bonfire night. So he blew up the factory. And this is important because he's stopping German production. Yeah. So it's, it's just really, really important. And you've got other people like... Tony Brooks, who came up with the idea of using an abrasive gel uh, inside locomotives so they would get a certain distance or pouring it into the um, Mm -hmm. fuel tanks if they were um, that kind of train. I'm not a train expert. I've fouled myself there. But yeah, the trains would get a couple of miles out of the station and then they would just stop. And Tony Brooks thought this was all brilliant. So there's loads of amazing men out there who who deserve credit, really. Um. You mentioned Peugeot there because, I, as I understand it, Peugeot was sabotaging a lot of what they were making anyway. Yeah, they were doing their best. That was another thing that they encouraged was to try and foul things inside the factories, miss out screws or pass things as being ready to go out of the production line that weren't. So they yeah. would just start to fall apart anyway. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And if it falls apart a month down the line, you can't really pin it on the factory, can you? No, three months Peugeot was out of business after that act of sabotage, which is huge. Yeah, that, that is huge for the war effort. You know, sometimes these things only lasted a few hours before they were back up and running. But yeah. And he was just a really quiet fellow was Harry Ray. He was really, um, he was a headmaster after the war. In fact, he was my PhD supervisor's teacher. Really? <laughs> and I remember, I remember reading a draft of it going, I know this man. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, very quietly spoken, apparently. So when these guys go in, because I've often thought one of the big advantages that, that the women of F-section have is that basically you expect to see ladies in French towns. 
you, you yeah. expect to see women still around. You don't really expect to see men. Now, I know the women go in and they've got covers like secretaries and cosmetic saleswoman, I believe, was uh, um, was one. Yeah. What sort of covers are the men going in with that kind of potentially deal with that problem? Yeah, so you're right. I mean, this is forced labour programme. So men of military age are going to stand out that little bit more. So some of them have got letters that have them uh, as being invalid out of that situation. I know Virginia Hall faked a letter for somebody uh, saying that he had a medical condition that meant he wasn't fit to be able to go and do this stuff. Um, Whether the Germans actually took that or not, I don't know, because, you know, they weren't exactly sympathetic to these kinds of Mm. things, uh, forcing people into all sorts of situations. Yeah, the disabled were not somebody that the Nazis have sympathy with. Not terribly, no, exactly. So, yeah, they were given covers, I guess, sort of like reserved occupations back here, things that would uh, stop them being Mm. rounded up by the forced labour. And I don't actually know enough about the forced labour programme to know quite how far it was instilled whether they went for the younger people rather than going for the uh, sort of middle-aged and older men, which I'm not saying SOE put those types of men in, but the age range was absolutely huge. So you've got people going in um, with all sorts of covers to try and keep them safe. Uh, I've been reading something about, you know, somebody was a baker. Uh, the baker one made me laugh. It was a woodworker was one that I read. Uh, and he was such a convincing cover for him uh, that he worked in a timber factory that the Germans actually bought timber from him. And of course, he fouled it to make sure yeah. <laughs> that they couldn't use it properly. So there were all kinds of jobs that were still viable within occupied territory that people would still need to do. Uh, and like yeah. I say, I'm not quite sure how enormous that roundup was. I'm really interested in STO and it's something I want to look into more because also, why didn't they take the women? But you're right, it was far, far easier for women to move around, easier being a relative expression, because um, nothing's easy in occupied territory and nothing's easy when you're an undercover agent. But to be able to move around on your bicycle, selling um, cosmetics door to door or being a district nurse, that kind of thing was far easier for the women to to undertake. Was SOE a truly equals opportunities employer? Um, Were there any particular roles that remained only for men? So... I don't think they went out to um, think of themselves as equal opportunities. Mm. I think they saw a situation unfolding in front of them, particularly with the service due to avail obligatoire, where it became obvious to to start to use women. So I don't think they thought, oh, you know, shit, we better employ some women because they'll be after us if we don't. Um, We can't put our modern sentiment onto it. Mm -hmm. I think that, yes, roles did stay for men. And that main role was as a circuit leader. So if your listeners don't know how France worked, it was divided up into like a patchwork quilt. Um, there were little territories all throughout France that were circuits and they had really weird names like headmaster, scholar, wheelwright and so on. And these Juggler. circuits worked. Yes. Yeah. So where does that come from? <laughs> That's bizarre, isn't it? Uh, the circuits worked independently, but they also worked together. And within each circuit, you have a circuit leader, a wireless operator and a courier. And then you may have other SOE personnel or you might recruit more local resistance. Circuit leaders were predominantly men. We do have evidence in some of the files that some women were selected to be circuit leaders and sent out to do that, but it didn't necessarily happen. And this is because France is still a very patriarchal society. Pearl Witherington summed it up beautifully. She said, you know, I'm I'm English and I'm a woman. 
they're not going to listen to me. Uh, she had no choice. I'll come back to her in a minute. But being the circuit leader was predominantly a male role. And what they said about the women was they needed enough nous to be able to do one simple, specific task efficiently and do it well. Mm -hmm. That's what they thought of the women. They needed to be subordinates. They needed to be able to take orders. And the women that came unstuck were those who were fighting back. Uh, Lisa Bazak in her second mission, working with Tony Brooks, for example, she was very much under the impression that she was going out to be the circuit leader. And they just butted heads the whole time. He hated her not only because she was questioning every move he made, but she wasn't terribly sympathetic to um, the politics because, of course, the French weren't just fighting the Germans. They were fighting each other, you know, yeah. Gaulists and communists and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I would say it was equal opportunities in that they were given the opportunity to go, but the roles they undertook, they only became section heads if something went very badly wrong. Wireless operators could be male or female. Um, they're still predominantly male, but there were female mm -hmm. wireless operators going out there uh, who were equally good. In fact, they said women were better because they were used to doing monotonous tasks daily. Uh, like they meant like typing or sewing. But, yeah. You know, marvelously <laughs> sexist, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. They were happy to send women out. Equal, no. There were 39 women and I think it's something like 440 men in F section. But they liked the idea that women could go out there and they, they tried to cross not only sort of the sexual boundaries, but social boundaries mm -hmm. as well. Now, I've mentioned uh, Pearl Witherington earlier. So Pearl's circuit leader was a man called Morris Southgate. And Pearl was formidable. I met Pearl and even at 80, you didn't want to argue with her. And she was very, very passionate about security, about the way that things should be done. She's quite regimented. She actually had another female agent sent home because she didn't think she was good enough, a lady called Odette Wyland. Morris Southgate was arrested. And in the interim, Pearl was told by Buckmaster, head of F section, to take over the circuit. She needed to run it. She split it with the wireless operator. They had half each. Yeah. And she said to the wireless operator, you've got to keep asking for a man. Because like I've just said, she thought she was English and she was female and the French men wouldn't listen to it. And my God, did they listen to that woman? It, it, it ended up because they kept not sending anybody out because D-Day was getting closer and closer. Yeah that she ended up running this maquis. And she said, I was sick of them arguing. They were nicking food off each other, nicking weapons off each other, being incredibly childish. So <laughs> she divided them into four groups and each group had a leader and each leader reported to Pearl. She didn't take any anything from them at all. You know, she was like, sort it out or else. And come D-Day, Pearl had 3,000 maquis or resistors under her control. And she saw them through D-Day. And then after D-Day, they sent the Jedburgh teams out and they arrived and she said, oh, now you turn up. Well, thanks for that. <laughs> I've just done all this on my own and now you're bothered to turn up. And they said she had run it so well, they weren't going to change a single thing that she had put in place. Yeah. So I, I know that I've turned back to talking about women there, but I think it's important to know that when women took on men's roles, it was very notable and very worthy to talk about there was another one who took over a maquis as well i think it was nancy wake um yeah she yeah, seems the type she does doesn't she you're not gonna yeah. mess with her are you <laughs> did she kill a man with her bare hands so she said yeah 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 yeah, mm. yeah it's in her memoirs so i'm not gonna argue with no. Her. No, uh, no it sounds about right uh, and she certainly she certainly uh, liked to run around with a gun in her hands and that's something that was interesting about pearl 
she said, I'm not going to kill. It's a woman's job to make life, not take it away. So although she was happy to do all the, the training and everything else, she mm. didn't want to actually be involved in uh, in an act of killing herself. Yeah. Even though she was the best shot in SOE. Pearl was brilliant. Um, absolutely amazing. So... Yeah, I think they were equal opportunities, but not in the way that we with our 21st century minds would look at it. I think they saw an opportunity for women to do a job. And I don't think the women thought, I've got to go out there and prove I can do it. It was far more, there's a job to be done, so I'm going to go and do it type thing. It's still the 1940s after all. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. One area that's, that's always intrigued me, and I wonder if you can confirm or deny this, because I haven't dug into this any further. But one of the particular demographics of men that SOE would be very interested in would be gay men because they yeah. already know how to do lead a double life. Is that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Rake, Dennis Rake, uh, was openly gay and an actor. So I mean, absolutely perfect. Like you say, already leading a double life, and because he was an actor as well, knowing how to live a cover story. I always think that's got to be the most exhausting thing: is living that lie day after day after day. Uh, and not slipping or when you get a bit tired, letting it go. But yeah, they were certainly, um, Dennis Rake's the most famous one. And I think there were other homosexual men as well. Mm. Like you say, they're just used to living, always looking over their shoulder. Yeah. The healthy set of healthy sense of paranoia running through your entire soul is yeah. going to serve you incredibly yeah, well. I think out so. there. Yeah. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right. Well, we can't really talk about the men in F section without going and talking about the man at the top of F section, Buckmaster. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, he's divisive chap at best. You know, he's some successes, some failures. We could all say Buckmaster made mistakes. Tell our listeners then sort of who he was, what, what sort of mistakes he made, and is the criticism that he gets later on truly justified? So Buckmaster was the head of SOEF section. He wasn't the first head of F section. There was somebody in front of him. Uh, and he wasn't really a military man. He was brought in because of the contacts he had all over France. I think he was a car salesman or something like that, but had very, very good contacts all over France. And he inherited F section. And F section... And SOE itself were already on the back foot because MI6 hated them. They hated everything about them. They said they were amateurish. They didn't like the way they recruited. They didn't like the way they trained. They just didn't like them. And they tried to retain some sort of control over them. So like I say, SOE was already sort of struggling. 
And then you get Buckmaster coming along, inheriting uh, F section. And we're already in the wake of the tragedies unfurling in the Netherlands, for example, with the um, what's called the Englandspiel, where every single agent being dropped into Holland was arrested and eventually executed. So there was all this stuff already going on around him. But Buckmaster, it could be argued, made some pretty fundamental decisions that in hindsight and evaluating them are not the best decisions in the world. Uh, as I say, I know this is a podcast about men, but I think his most famous one has to be Nouriniak Khan. Uh, Nouriniak Khan was uh, an Indian. She'd been brought up mm -hmm. in France. Uh, she was Sufi, which is uh, part of Islam, a very peaceful, uh, beautiful part of Islam. It's lovely. Uh, you mustn't lie and everything's very serene. She was described as being a bit dreamy. Uh, and as she went through training, uh, it became a bit obvious that her security might not be what it was. And although she was an excellent wireless operator, there were, going to, there were concerns about her, which were expressed by the instructors. Things like not overburdened with brains or, like I said, Ooh, has this dreamy yummy. quality. Anyway, he writes in the margins. It's in her file in the National Archives, in margins. He puts, we don't want them overburdened with brains. And in the bit where the instructor says, I don't think she's suitable for this work, he's written absolute balls. This gets taken to the head of F uh, SOE overall, to Gubbins. And Buckmaster is absolutely furious that uh, Spooner, the instructor, has dared to do this. And he writes, Spooner is a bastard and he is taken against her. It's not only the instructors who are concerned about this. There are other agents who write letters and say, we just don't think that she should go. And Noor is approached by Vera Atkins, who's Buckmaster's second in command, with these concerns. And she says, I just desperately want to go. So Buckmaster lets her go. That's the first thing. Then the Prosper Network uh, implodes in France. Everybody mm -hmm. is arrested. And for whatever miracle, Noor is the only one left standing, basically. And she keeps the wireless traffic going. Buckmaster calls her back. He says, it's too dangerous for you. And she refuses. Uh, and he says, all right. And it says in his memoirs, I accepted her sacrifice of, as that of a soldier. He should have insisted that she came back. He could have insisted that she came back, but he didn't. He left her out there. And in his memoirs, at the end of the war, he writes, I did nothing that cost anybody their lives. Oh, like, didn't you? Are you yeah. sure? That's just one example. That's just one of them. The issue we have as historians with SOE is that all the files were weeded at the end of the war. We're dealing with one tenth of the original files. We will never get the full picture. But yeah. you get somebody like Buckmaster's memoirs and they are difficult to use as a, as a source because he is tr trying to make it all sound really gung-ho and yeah, it was all brilliant. We all had an amazing time. Yeah, a few people didn't come back, but, you know, predominantly this was great. But yeah, I do think he made some fundamental flaws, but he had a devil of a job. I mean, who would want yeah. to be in charge of all of that, really? Um, yeah. And making decisions that will involve people's lives or making the decision that you're going to sacrifice somebody for the greater cause. That must be so, so difficult. So I'll stand up for him in that little tiny bit just there. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're doing trying something there that we'd never really tried before mm. with the sort of people that we'd never really tried it with before. Yeah, and that's a really good point, Paul. It's a, we had never used these sorts of people before. There was no prerequisite to be an SOE agent at all. You just had to try and you just had to fit the bullet interview and get through training. So these people had never done this kind of thing before. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. 
they, it's referenced in Sarah Helm's biography of Vera Atkins as well that there are there, there are there are instances where people are going in. I believe this is the this is in Holland, the England spiel, where mm-hmm. basically Germany is now just using English wireless sets back. Yeah, and Bookmaster is pretty much getting messages and going. Well, that, does, that, that doesn't have the right intro code on it. Still, never mind, eh? Let's well, that's carry no, on. That was no, um, because the Germans got her radio and they got her codes and they started to play it back. And there was a true and a false check that they had to include. So the check wasn't in there and he went, doesn't matter. It's just no. She does that. <laughs> six months. It took them six months to realise she'd been captured. And on the back of her, it's in my book, I can't remember the number of agents who were sent in on the back of those messages who were all captured and executed. Yeah, they're pretty much just waiting for them when they dropped, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm, what a man. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but really hard. Yep. As I say, we'll stand up for a minute. Hard job with no precedent. Yep. Uh, this, is, this is what espionage yeah. is, after all. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And let's not take it away from the fact that it worked. It didn't really work as kind of flawlessly as we might hope. But, you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Exactly. It did work. It did. A lot of people say that SOE failed. I don't think it did. I'm a firm believer that without SOE and without them organising the resistance the way they did, certainly D-Day couldn't have happened the way it did. Because what was going to happen, all these people arrive in Normandy, but if the interior of France hadn't been prepared for that, what would have happened? They'd have been stopped straight away. The resistance and the SOE stopped the German movement coming down to Normandy. And, you know, they basically started a fight in the interior. They blew up 960 trains on the night of the 5th of June. That's impressive. They cut 32 telephone lines. That's huge because then the Germans are back on the wireless sets and the boffins at Bletchley have cracked Enigma. So to me, but with every success there came reprisal and that's the scary Mm. thing about soe uh is reprisals and the amount of people who were murdered on the back of an soe action or resistance action yeah yeah because it's not just you're not just sending somebody potentially to their death you're sending somebody to their capture death and then a hundred other people in the same area are just who were minding their own business Mm. are just shot yeah just coming back to Bookmaster, if I may. Go, you've got go me, for it. You've got me go going. You've got me going. Um, in his memoirs, he said that I didn't keep records. He said, I was not keeping a diary so I could write my memoirs. I was fighting a war. And he's right um, that the the documentation is quite sparse. It's not as much as we would want there to be. We've got the reports of Bourne Patterson and obviously MRD Foote's SOE in France in the 60s. But we really don't have as much information as we should. And to some extent, that's a testament to him that he didn't keep a diary. I've seen his diary. Uh, his son showed it to me and it was literally at 10 o'clock, I'll be here. And at two o'clock, I'm having lunch with Vera and so on. He didn't keep massive amounts of notes because he just didn't have the time to do that. Yeah. Well, you mentioned lunch with Vera. Um, so I know we're mostly here to talk about the men, but you talk in your book a lot about Vera Atkins, who sort of went on a personal quest to find out what happened to the members of F section who didn't come back. Um, what sort of fates did those agents meet? Yeah, so there were 118 agents who didn't come home, uh, 13 of whom were women, which, as you say, I document in the book. But we've got the male agents as well who were captured 
taken to various Gestapo headquarters, be they the Avenue Foch in Paris or to local Gestapo headquarters. Uh, and we do have a lot of information about what happened to them during those interrogations. They certainly weren't subtle with their, the torture. Uh, and you've got things like beating and electric shock treatment, something called the banoir, which is essentially waterboarding where their heads are held down in a bathtub. Uh, and the men really were brutalized. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of people who went through Avenue Foch were, were very badly treated. And then a lot of them, like the women, were deported and sent to various concentration camps. Um, so certainly Mauthausen, Flossenburg, Sachsenhausen are the camps where these guys ended up. Now, I've been to Sachsenhausen a few times and it's a really, every camp's brutal, don't get me wrong, but they have a running track at Sachsenhausen where they had to try out different types of footwear or run barefoot and you'd go through rubble and then over bricks and then over gravel, over glass uh, and they were forced to sort of go around this track. We also know there were medical experiments at Sachsenhausen and that people were treated absolutely brutally. A guy called Francis Suttil, I mentioned the Prosper Network to you mm-hmm. um, a few minutes ago. He was Prosper. He was arrested and he was taken to to Avenue Foch first. Uh, and eventually he was taken to, to Sachsenhausen. And sorry, I should say before that, he was actually taken to, to Flossenburg, then uh, to Sachsenhausen, uh, where he was placed in solitary confinement. And he was kept there for quite a long time. And he wasn't actually executed until March 1945. Now, if you think some of the other camps were starting to be liberated in January uh, of that year, uh, he, you know, he got so close to maybe being able to survive. Yeah. Also, there was a guy called William Grover Williams, who was a Bugatti racing driver before the war. And he was arrested and he was also executed. Now, that's all the information I've got at my fingertips about the way they're executed. I'm going to assume it's by gunshot. Although at Sachsenhausen, hanging was also a very common form of execution. One of the camps, I think it's Mauthausen, has the, um, I think it's called the Stay Away of Death, where they worked in a quarry. So these people were taken away and they were brutalized, essentially. They were also Nacht und Nebel prisoners, which I, I mentioned in Mission France about the women. Nacht und Nebel meaning night and fog. So if you were caught as a member of the resistance... You would be taken to these camps, but you wouldn't necessarily be entered into the camp records and any death or execution wouldn't be recorded so that your relatives would have no idea what had happened to you. So you've mentioned Vera there. It was then Vera's job to go and find out what happened to these men and these women. 118 were missing and she found 117 of them one person she didn't manage to get and she thinks it's because he absconded with a load of money um, <laughs> and just disappeared into the background well if you're going to parachute into france with you know fifty thousand, yeah you could just yeah off, couldn't Surprise, you? i'm surprised you? we got the yeah. loyalty that we got yeah so uh grover williams uh tortured systematically beaten and starved at saxonhausen and then executed uh, and his racing driver colleague who he had recruited alongside him I never know how you pronounce it. I think it's Benoist, actually got away when the two of them were arrested together. He got back to England and he was captured in Paris in June 1944 and he was sent to Buchenwald and there he was executed. They were not going to be sympathetic if they thought you were resistance or spies. There was, you know, there was no trial. There was no, let's see if you were in, if you're, um, 
innocent in any way, shape or form. You're just taken away and murdered, thrown in a mass grave or whatever it was. And it was Vera at the end of the war who went round all these camps. I mean, God, what a job she must have had yeah. to find out what had happened and to interview the camp guards and see if she could work out who was where. And as you mentioned Nacht and Nabel, Night and Fog there, am I right in understanding that that if you are captured then, it's not just that you are executed, you are pretty much just your page is torn out of the history book at that yeah. point. You've there there is no trace of you. You could be anywhere in occupied Europe. Yeah, that's exactly it. There is nothing to say where you are or where you've gone. All all the SOE files say is uh, there's an SOE casualty sheet you'll find in the archives, Mm -hmm. and it says missing in action. You'll probably find out how they were arrested because there would have been somebody else nearby. You may, if um, these other people don't get captured, you may then have notes saying where they went because they kept an eye on each other. They were really good looking after each other. But once they'd been deported, there was no way of knowing um, where they'd gone or what had happened to them. So it was all piecing it back together after the war. So is all the information that we currently know about their fate then down to Vera Atkins? For F section, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And she interviewed people. She went to the war trials. Um, She wrote to the relatives. She's got boxes of files at the Imperial War Museum. There are eight of them. Uh, I thought they were going to be little tiny boxes and I ordered all eight and my entire desk was like, oh God, I've only got a day. They're enormous. And she wrote to everybody. And again, if you go through the files at the National Archives, you will find letters to families, um, condolences, wills, all that kind of thing. She dealt with everything that you get with a a casualty of war. Yeah, as I understand it as well, she was... She was involved with absolutely every agent that went out. She'd go and see them off. She'd be the welcoming committee when they came back. She was in charge of dealing with their family. Yeah. yeah. You know, there there was nobody closer in SOE than Vera Atkins to anybody in F section. No, I agree with that. She was there for pretty much everything. Um, She talked to people. She counseled them. Uh, One of the agents I met, Yvonne Baisden, survived Ravensbrück. And she said Vera was at the train station to pick her up after liberation she was there to although apparently she was quite brusque and she said just we'll just go and have a cup of tea you'll be fine (laughs) (laughs) it'll all be all right (laughs) but there was no comprehension was there nobody knew what those camps were like we still can't comprehend it um you can visit them all you want we will still never comprehend it so you know there's nothing wrong with that good british uh, attitude let's go and have a cup of tea and a bacon butty and it'll all be fine well you you mentioned that because one of the extracts that i and i don't want to do too much of a spoiler warning in the book there but it was um and i am going to dive into talking about the women here but just in highlighting that people didn't really know what those camps were like it was cicely lafour that wrote to her husband Mm. from was it ravensbrook And he yes. responded to her asking for a divorce. I mean, come on. Yeah. What a git. <laughs> what an absolute git. Even if you don't know how bad it is. And I say in the book, don't I, that he at least asked Vera. And she said, oh, it's just an internment camp. It's nothing to worry about. What a shit. Oh, I think I'll just, just drop her a line and ask for a divorce. And good on her. She found the camp doctor and she said, write him out of my will. Get rid of him. Uh, I don't know if the divorce went through. I've never got that far, but I know he didn't get anything out of her because she was executed. Yeah, I love Cicely. If I ever have to do a talk on SOE, I will always talk about Cicely because what a girl for sorting that out in the middle of a concentration camp. Yeah, Knowing that you are not going out of that concentration camp as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Who, in the end, faced justice for their treatment of these agents? Did anything Vera Atkins uncover help bring Nazi criminals to justice? Yeah, I think it did. She uh, she interviewed a lot of people, not just SOE related. She even interviewed Hearst of uh, Auschwitz as well. She got involved in quite a lot about it. But yeah, I think she did. She found these people and she managed to interview them. For some of them, she got confessions out of them. Others didn't you know, claim any sort of guilt whatsoever. So Kiefer, who was the commandant of... 84 Avenue Foch, for example, didn't actually technically kill anyone himself. So he, he he sort of fluffed his way around it a bit. But Vera was there. She took affidavits. Uh, if you go through all the files, you will find affidavits that, of interviews that, or interviews that she put together. And these were presented at the war trials. And she was there at those war trials. So, yeah, I think she was responsible for making sure that justice was done. But justice being done is not what what in an ideal world I think we would want. We don't get, you know, every single camp guard executed. We don't get any everybody responsible executed because there's that good old expression, I was only following orders and you had to prove it. So, yeah, she, she was helpful in uh, outing these people. But whether justice was done at the war trials, I suppose, is another whole mm. story, really, isn't it? people got away literally with mass murder yeah that's a potential rage in itself mm, yeah definitely but yeah I've, I've got utmost admiration for Vera I just really wish I'd had the opportunity to meet her um but it's yeah. one of those things she'd have probably scared you I think she would you know um if you just listen to her interviews she does sound really formidable and apparently always had a cigarette on the go as well so you know yeah, intimidating, I think, is the word. Lovely. Well, thank you very much for that, Kate. That's that's given me and Kyle a wealth of people to look at and follow, um, even when we're pretty into SOE right from the start, particularly Kyle, who's been probably m- muttering the words grease behind his breath the entire <laughs> time. But absolutely, that was absolutely fantastic. And thank you very, very much for coming on, Kate. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to finally say it. Yeah. Yay, there were men. I think I'll probably talk more about the yeah, women anyway, flipping heck, but <laughs> It's fine. It's uh, fine. Can't help I it. Remember. You just can't help it. You get soaked down this, uh, this sinkhole of uh, the women agents. But no, go and look them up. Uh, people like Tony Brooks, Harry Ray, they've all got biographies out there that are so worth listening to. And you'll find yourself a new hero in no time. Thank you. So if you'd like to know more about Kate's work, then you can start by purchasing the excellent book, Mission France, which we'll be posting up in the History Rage bookshop. And you can see her at many historical sites throughout the year. Just check out historiesmade.co.uk for the dates. And you can follow her on Twitter at historical underscore Kate. Thank you very much for bringing the rage, Kate. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually, I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe to us on Patreon because your £5 per month will get you early episodes and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, thanks a lot for listening and stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.